So, let's pray, and we'll get into Matthew 21. Father, I just think of Elijah this morning, the, the Old Testament prophet who was hiding in a cave. And there was an earthquake, and there was a great wind, and there was a fire. There were all these powerful events, and, and, and Elijah thought he would maybe find you in one of those, Lord, and, and hear you in, in this great miraculous event. And Lord, what he heard you in was this still small voice. And today, still, Lord, we are hearing you. Not always in the, <clears throat> the great emotion and the great fire, the, this powerful move. But Lord, we just want to hear your still, small voice speaking to our hearts. I thank you for the, the voice that spoke in the hearts last week during our Easter service, Lord. The way you spoke to so many, convicting of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. And the way you invited uh, some that are here today, just last week, to be saved and to enter into to the light, to the kingdom of light. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to do the work, Lord, that we would not feel pressure to convince, <clears throat> to refute, to argue, Lord, but your spirit would cut through right into hearts this morning regarding the truth of your word. And I pray that as we study, Lord, you would uh, just captivate our minds in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm struggling with pollen myself. We're in Matthew 21. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 18. Uh, we're kind of out of sync because two weeks ago we studied uh, the triumphal entry, the beginning of uh, Matthew 21, where Jesus, as the king, comes into Jerusalem. Uh, he's hailed by the people. The, the, the population of Jerusalem has swelled uh, because of the Passover, it's the Passover, it's one of their biggest celebrations. Uh, it's just, it would have been an awesome thing to be part of. I can imagine people would come from all over the place in big caravans to come to Jerusalem like a gigantic retreat. And they would celebrate there the fact that there was a lamb that died in their place so that they could live. And it's at that same time that the Lamb of God is also entering into the temple area. He cleanses the temple. He overturns the table, tables of the money changers. And so we went right from the triumphal entry to Easter. But here in the Bible, we're still in that one week period of time between when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and when he uh, is crucified and then rises from the dead. So we're still in that week. Um, Jesus has just uh, went out to Bethany. Remember, the city population grew so much that they had to extend the boundaries of the city out to include Bethany, which, which with, was just a short distance away. So the next morning, verse 18 says, In the morning, as he returned to the city, going back into Jerusalem, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. This is an interesting story and, and has caused a lot of people some difficulty. Uh, it's, it's, it's a miracle. Uh, it's a destructive miracle. We don't often see Jesus in his miracles destroying. But in this miracle, he causes a fig tree to die. Uh, Mark tells us from the roots he didn't need Roundup. He was the inventor of Roundup. 
kill stuff from the roots. We love that stuff at our place. And it's, we know Jesus was hungry, he, he, you know, which many people say, well, it speaks of his humanity. And he comes out, he's hungry, and he, he's expecting to have food from this fig tree. And since he's hungry and since he's under stress, now he's mad, so he curses the fig tree in his anger. And I, I don't see that, personally. Um, there's a few things we, we have to know here um, so we understand what is going on. This is a living parable. It was very common for prophets to live out the message that God was trying to say. Uh, the book of, of Hosea talks about Hosea and Gomer, Hosea marrying a prostitute, an adulterous woman. And it was speaking of God's relationship to Israel, how Israel was an adulterous woman and how they would keep, how God kept taking her back after she had continued to be unfaithful. And so God has Hosea live that out. And so this story here of the fig tree that Jesus curses is really Jesus performing a living parable, a living illustration of his, his relationship to and his disappointment with Israel. And in some ways, you could say maybe there's some application for us here too. So in the morning, he's coming into the city, he's hungry, he sees a fig tree by the road. And the fig tree, it wasn't in somebody's garden, it was a, a fig tree that was growing by the road. It was fair game for anybody passing by to eat from. You could do that. That was part of their allowances. But what was the disappointment? He, he was, the fig tree was there. He comes to it. And just, if you like to underline in your Bibles, just underline nothing but leaves. Because that seems to be the point. Because if you read this in Mark 11, you find out that Mark says it wasn't the season for figs. So it would be no surprise that Jesus found no figs on it because Mark says it's not the season for figs. So then that's unfair if Jesus curses this poor fig tree for not doing something it couldn't do anyway at that time of year. But also Mark makes the mention of nothing but leaves. So we're trying to get our attention focused on what's the deal here. There's supposed to be or there's an expectation for fruit, but instead there's only leaves. Now when's the last time you went out to the apple orchard and you were hungry and there were no apples so you just started chomping on some leaves? Leaves don't satisfy. Leaves don't fill. Uh, fig trees work for Adam, fig leaves work for Adam and Eve, but they're not very good to eat. They're not really good to wear either, uh, but they're definitely not good to eat. So the fig tree in Israel, in April, which is the time of year it is, you would get these little green fig buds that would come out on the tree. Now they were barely edible. If you were a peasant or you were poor, you might eat them. And then, so these little buds would come out and then the leaves would start to come out after that. And then later on in the summer, the actual, those, those little tiny green figs would fall off. And then the larger ones that grow to be, you know, sweet and purple, those would grow later on in the summer. So because there are leaves on the tree, there's an expectation that there should be these little green fig fruits. But instead, there was, there was nothing. And, and Jesus, uh, God often talks about the problem with, with Israel. There's this, um, he does, God does everything he can. If you read Isaiah 5, wonderful little passage about a, a vineyard and how the, the vineyard owner does everything he can to make sure that this vineyard is going to produce good grapes. He, he clears the land. He puts a tower in it for protection. He gets out all the stones. He uses the best soil, the best trees, everything. But what happens? Instead of bringing, what, what should the, the vine dresser expect? He should expect if he's done everything right, 
that it should bring forth good grapes, right? But instead, it brought forth wild grapes. And he said, therefore, I have to, I have to tear it up and mow it down because it's just, it's just bringing forth wild grapes. Nothing but leaves speaks of uh, disappointment. When there, there's supposed to be something there of fruit and it's not found. Well, what, is G, what is this fruit that he's looking for? What is the fruit Jesus is looking for? Well, Matthew chapter 3 tells us, and I'll just read this to you quickly. You don't have to turn there. I'll go there and, and read it to you. When John the Baptist is preaching, he says, uh, but when, the, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, the, to his baptism, to John's baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. That's the way to start your sermon. Brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, listen, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's what he's looking for, repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They, well, my parents and my grandparents uh, you know, were faithful people. So therefore, because I'm connected to them, I'm okay. He said, don't say that. He says, even now that the axe is laid at the root of the trees. In other words, the axe, the guy's ready to chop it down because it's, it's a, not a, a viable tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so even back then, John's message was one of warning. Hey, religious people. And I'll say it to you this morning. Hey, religious people. Be careful. Because what God is looking for is not just the outward ornamentation of Christianity. He's looking for the fruit of a real change in your life. That's what repentance is, right? These religious leaders, they had all the leaves, didn't they? They had all the ornamentation. It all all looked good on the outside. They knew how to pray. They knew how to give alms to the poor. All of it was for show. We started at our farm just planting trees that bear fruit. I'm not so concerned these days with trees that look good. Some of you might be. We decided if we're going to plant, if I'm going to dig the hole and I'm going to water it, I want to eat something from it. Just a personal decision. But here, the problem with Israel, the problem with the church is we can have all the outward manifestations of the thing. We can look right, but lack any fruit. And you can have that in your life. That's a good question for us this morning, isn't it? Are, are you just a bunch of leaves? Just a, you know how to talk the talk, you know how to walk the walk, you know how to carry a Bible and go to Bible study and all those things. And you know, this is why people reject Christ. This is why people reject church. Because they've seen it, they've come, and here's what happens. Listen to me very closely. They come hungry. They come hungry, and what do they find when they come to church? Just leaves. There's, no re- there's nothing to satisfy there. I thought, I was expecting, I was hopeful. I've heard stories. But then I went to that church down the road, or I went to the church in the high school, I went to the church in the corner, and I was so hungry for something real, something that would satisfy But instead, what I found is a bunch of people that were just a lot of leaves. Matter of fact, as soon as church ends, they leave. Or leaf. No relationships, no conversation, no changed lives. Matter of fact, I know some of those people at that church, and I see how they do business in the world. They're the same as everybody else. You see what Jesus is trying to say? He's trying to, once again, this whole time, he's going to continue to confront These people that have all the outward religious stuff. They're the experts on what the Word of God says and on on what it should 
how the people should live, but they don't live it themselves. They never repented. They never turned away from their old life and to God. And what Jesus is looking for is people that by faith repent, change directions, and turn to God. I'm going back to Matthew 21 now. So I hope you understand what the issue is here. And so this is a living parable. He's showing them this has to do with his relationship to religious Israel. To all these religious people that were, people were coming, the pilgrims were coming, hoping to find, wanting to find God. And instead found all this empty outward religion. I just, you know, I got better things to do with my life than pursue religious ritual. Don't you? I think that's why you're here because you want something that is real and satisfies. So he curses the fig tree, immediately it withers away. I had you mark 2 Peter chapter 1. I don't want to spend much more time on this, but let's just go there real quick. Because this can be our problem as, as Christians. You know, you get saved and, and then you get busy. And you never really progress. You never ever actually bear the fruit. You never actually demonstrate the fact that you are living a Christian life. Matter of fact, some of the people you work with may not even know you are a Christian. So look at what... Now, Peter was there when Jesus cursed the fig tree. He saw it. He saw the parable. And you know, illustrations stick in our minds, don't they? And I believe that as Peter writes this letter, he's thinking about that moment. When he says, look, in in verse 4, 2 Peter 1, verse 4, he says, you have been given these exceedingly great and precious promises that through these... You can be a partaker of God's nature, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Guys, we got to escape all the nonsense in the world that's caused by greed and lust and all those things. We were talking yesterday about how anytime a thing becomes a business, God be, the God of that business is money. It becomes about money. And so healthcare can become, can go from something that's about people to something that's about money. And education can go from something that's about people to something that's about money. And, and church can go from something that's pe- about people to something that's about money. And any time you find lust or greed involved in a human institution, it changes it from man, from, from being about loving people or serving people to about money. And Jesus says, look, we can partake of, and Peter says, excuse me, of the divine nature, the nature of God. And we can escape the corruption. And we still have to live in the world, but we don't have to live that way. And he says, because of that, because we get to do these things, because we have these promises, we can escape all that nonsense. For this very reason, verse 5 says, be diligent, giving all, give all your effort to adding to your faith. Have, is that, would that describe you? Have you made every effort to add to your faith? Or are you just kind of skip? You're making every effort to add to your 501k, but you're sort of skating by in your in, in your Christian life. You're making every effort to add to your portfolio. You're being diligent about adding to your kid's resume for college, or your resume for work. And he says, but Peter says, look, give give for this reason, give every diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, godliness brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness love. So there's this progression of adding to our faith. And here's the reason, verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, if you're doing this, if you're constantly working, 
about on adding to your faith, then what happens? You will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, some people have knowledge of Jesus, but it doesn't produce anything. They're, they're, they're without, they, get, they don't give birth to anything, and there's no fruit in their lives. And that's possible, right? That's what Peter says. Here's the problem. It's just like Israel. The church, too, can have this struggle if you continue, if, if you stop pursuing the Lord. If you pursue the Lord, you'll bear fruit. It's just, it just, it's just natural. So an encouragement for us this morning and the question that you'll have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I adding to my faith or am I just getting by on the minimum? And am I bearing fruit in my Christian life? So with that said, I'll let you ponder that as we go back to Matthew. The disciples see this and, and man, they are uh, very impressed. Verse 20 says, they saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Man, Jesus, how did you do that? They should have been asking, why did you do that? But they're impressed. They ask, how? And it becomes a lesson on faith, which is what... It doesn't take any faith to put on a suit and carry a Bible. It takes faith to live like that. It takes faith to live uh, the life of Christ. So he says uh, to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree... But also, if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. That's a precious promise to the disciples, isn't it? I mean, it's one we, we quote and talk about. We've talked about that already. Uh, if you have faith, as a mustard seed. As this little tiny, if you just a little bit of faith and you act on it, you'll be amazed at what can happen in your life. That's the point. Is he speaking literally about mountains being moved? I mean... I spoke last time about, you know, Fluvanna's desire to increase tourism. I mean, if we could pray and we could move Mount Everest here, it would really increase tourism. We don't see it. I mean, it's not literal because uh, I've never seen anybody cast a mountain into the sea personally. Um, Jesus did literally curse the fig tree. But it wasn't about the fig tree. It's not about us running around doing parlor tricks, is it, as a church? It's not a, now, now, be careful here, because the issue that this gets contorted into is, see, it says, whatever I pray for, as long as I believe, I'll get it. Oh. Now, notice that the person telling them this information was homeless and poor. So it must not be about getting a new Mercedes and a house in Maui and, and making God our, 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 our Santa Claus, our wish list. That makes us God. And we know this thing called the word faith movement, that if I say it, that somehow there's power in my words as long as I believe. I don't think that's what's being said. If you read the book of Acts, uh, Peter and John go into the temple and they see this man by the gate beautiful and and he's been crippled and and laying there, you know, begging for alms. And Peter, they connect eyes and Peter says, get up and walk, be healed. And the guy gets up and he starts running around the temple and jumping and praising God. And, and people come to Peter and John and go, whoa, you guys are incredible. And Peter says, wait a second, don't look at us as if it was something in us that healed this guy. It was through his name, Jesus' name, and faith in his name. Faith in his name. That His name is his character, it's who he is. It's his promises to us. So when we pray, 
you know, when, when you finally can get past the, 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 the focus on the fact that the person next to you is squeezing your hands so tight that you can't even feel your fingers anymore when we get together in group prayer. It's, it's faith in his name. And, and you would be amazed at what God can do when you wait on him. When you pray. See, the Pharisees, these religious people, they could pray without believing. Some of you maybe have been to churches and you hear people going through the prayer motions. There's no, and there's no belief connected to it. It's just a ritual prayer that I pray. I'm not even thinking about what I'm praying. That's what the Pharisees did. They would pray why? To be seen. For how it looked. Not what God was hearing. Let it not be among us. Don't you love to hear a genuine prayer? Don't you love to hear a childlike prayer where you hear kids pray and they just pray and and they have no problem talking to God? And and he could be right there. And But when we pray, somehow we're conscious of what everybody else is going to think when we pray and how they're going to perceive it. Am I going to pray right? Am I going to say the right thing? Or am I going to... You know, am I going to impress the people around me? Are they going to think I'm spiritual? Forget all that stuff and pray with your focus on the Lord and what His promises are and what... And He says, if you pray believing, you would not... You can't imagine the things that God can take out of the way in your life when you just trust Him. Isn't it true? Somebody, I see some of you guys shaking your heads because you've lived it. We've been living it greater and greater degrees in this fellowship. It's a, sometimes I just got to pinch myself. I'm baffled by... God, I had no idea how that was going to happen. And you have just totally, you've done it. And I could share stories for the next hour. And you could share stories. And so those of you in here that have never prayed. Or you've prayed and you've read it out of a book. Or you've never really had a heart connected to it. I want to encourage you to read this and think about it. If you have faith, if you trust. then then you'll be able to, to, if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it'll be done. And whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you'll receive. Now, verse 23, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, this is classic. He'd he'd already been in the day before and he cleansed the temple, the money changers, the crooks. In the temple, he, he tossed them out on their ear. He turned their tables over. And now he's back in the temple again. And so he's gotten people's attention there, particularly the Pharisees, because they think they're in charge. They think they're the authority. Right? Not much different than us, right? We don't ever get that way where we think that we know what's best or we're in charge. He comes to the temple. He's teaching. But you see, he hadn't been to their seminary. And he didn't have their certificates. And he didn't have their authorization. And he hadn't been trained in their seminars. And yet there he is teaching. And this is is problematic for them because they're the authority. So they confront him while he's teaching. As he was teaching, they approach him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And that's a good question. And now Jesus could have simply said, well, just read John 12, 49. My father did. But that wouldn't have, wouldn't have sufficed. You know, it's so funny. Growing up, <laughs> Jacob is older than Madeline. And Jacob is, uh, he has, I don't know if he knows it. I tell him this all the time. Every gift has a curse with it. You know, um, the gift of teaching. Sometimes we feel like, well, I have the gift of teaching. Therefore, every time there's a situation, I feel the right answer is to teach. But sometimes what's needed is compassion. 
sometimes what's needed is mercy. And some of you parents, you have the gift of teaching, and it's just every answer to your kid's problem is always to teach, 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 right? And sometimes they just need a hug. Sometimes you need to listen. So my son has the same gift as me teaching. We teach everything the answer is to teach. And so he would try to correct Madeline. And she had developed this interesting little saying. I mean, she's five or six years old. She would look at him and say, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And she was right. She was right. He, he, he wasn't the boss of her. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, you're not the boss of us. Who are you to be teaching people and telling us what to do? Telling us about God. And the question comes up again for us. Who is the authority in your life? Do you, do you come to church? You look at Jesus and say, well, who, who are you to tell me what to do? You know, in, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, we meet this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. He has a dream about a tree that gets cut off and it's left a stump. And the dream was about him. And what he was going to have to learn was one thing. Heaven rules. And it's the same lesson, because some of you in here have issues with authority. The minute someone tells you you can't do it, you say, oh yeah? You watch me. You got issues with authority at home. Maybe some younger folks with parents. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in school. Maybe it's in church. Issues with authority. Because you think you rule. And you'll never get it straight. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't get his kingdom back until he learned one lesson. Nebi, heaven rules. And we, too, have to learn that lesson. You have to learn that lesson. Look, folks, no matter how you slice it, heaven rules. God is in charge. He's in charge of Barack Obama. He's in charge of the election coming up. He's in charge of the world politics. He's in charge of it all. And it's going just according to his plan, isn't it? Heaven rules. Does heaven rule in your home? Does heaven rule in your life? Do you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's what I want. Or do you say, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? What can I do for you? What do you want from me? Lord, what, how can I serve you? You see, that was not there. This was part of the issue. Heaven wasn't ruling for them. They were ruling. So Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing. Which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So who's in charge, right? Now Jesus has got them on the run. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? So he says, hey guys, I'll tell you what. I'll answer your question if you can answer one of mine. Okay, Jesus is totally in charge here. So they go, oh, okay. Uh, we're in charge, but okay. Let me ask you this question. John the Baptist, when he was preaching repentance, when he was calling people to change lives, when he was having them change behavior to await the kingdom that was coming, who gave him that authority? Did, did heaven give him the authority or did man give him the authority? Did he go to your seminaries and, and, and your, your seminars and, and your schools and have your certificates? Or, or did God ordain that? And oh, this really causes... Because once they answer that question, right, they'll know the answer to their other question. So, they reasoned among themselves. They had a holy huddle. Now, come on, come on, guys, come on. We got, how are we going to, this is great stuff. I mean, this is classic. You know, all right, I, I, let's keep going. They reasoned among themselves, saying, they put their heads together, had a block party. If we say, from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? See, if they say from heaven, 
John the Baptist is the one that said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is the one that says, You guys are a brood of vipers. You need to repent to them. So if they say from heaven, Jesus is going to say, Why didn't you believe them? Because they didn't repent. They didn't believe what John the Baptist said. But they say, hmm, verse 26, But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So if we say from men, the problem is the people are going to get mad because they think John was from God. So we can't come out on a different side than the people. So they are really in a quandary. Jesus has got them stuck. Wouldn't you love to be able to argue like that? I would love to, to see Jesus play chess. You know, I mean, he had got to be so good. Just his mind was so awesome and so powerful. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. <laughs> They're afraid to say anything, right? Of course they knew. They just didn't want to admit it. So he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because they weren't interested in that. So he doesn't answer them. Uh, they knew the answer. <laughs> so again, Jesus is completely in charge. Verse 28. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. So we have two sons. This first son, the father comes to him, asks him to work. Fathers, that's a good thing. Ask your sons to work. I think it's healthy. Get him out from in front of the TV and the video game. Go work uh, in my vineyard. But look at this son. Look at the nerve of this kid, or, or young man, or whoever he is. He says, I will not. He says, Dad... Appreciate it, but no thanks. I'm on my last level here, the video game. I need to finish this. I will not. But after he says it, he regrets it. He begins to think about it, and he goes, eh, I shouldn't have said that. So afterward, he regretted it, and he went. So ultimately, does that son go into the vineyard and work? Yeah, he does. Even though he said no at first, changed his mind, and then he did it. Verse 30 says, then he came to the second son and said, likewise, you know, go in my vineyard and work. And this son answered, I go, sir. Notice it's very formal. Sir. Good little boy, huh? But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? So the, the first son says no, but then changes his mind. He goes. The second son says, oh, dad, I'd love to go. And then he, he, he never really meant it anyway. He's going to go back and, and finish what he was doing that never really goes so he says he will but he doesn't so can you answer the question which of the two did the will of his father which one the first right you got it right they said that they got it right too they said to him the first see it's not just talking about doing god's will it's not just saying we're, we're back to the leaves again right it's not just about what we say or what we acknowledge or or, or, or what we talk about, or what we teach. You know, some people have said the unique thing about Calvary Chapel, and, and I hope it stands true for us, is not just that we teach the Bible, it's that we really believe it. And, and people get confused, they think they're going to follow the form. You know, well, at Calvary Chapel, they're, they're you know, teaching the Bible verse by verse, and therefore, uh, and it's growing, so it must be, so we're going to teach verse by verse, therefore, and it's going to grow. No, it's not about the form. It's about what you believe. It's about actually doing the will of God. So they said the first, and then look what Jesus says to them. 
Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. I mean, you must have heard Jaws hit the temple floor, the, 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 I mean, so loud because this was unthinkable. These religious leaders, they were the one. This is the Pope of the time. I mean, imagine someone coming to, put to the Pope and saying, you're not going to heaven. I mean, that would be, in certain circles, that would be unheard. I mean, that would be, like, astounding. Because they got the, the, the clothes, got the hat, got the uniform, got the, the car with the bulletproof glass, got the whole thing. And so for Jesus to say this to them, I'm just trying to paint you a picture of what these Pharisees would have been like. To say, harlots, prostitutes? are going to go to heaven before these religious guys? Uh-huh. And Matthew, no doubt, loves where he says, and tax collectors, because that was him. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors, the lowest of the low, are going to get into heaven before you guys. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots, what was the difference? They believed him. And when you saw it, and here's the, here's the condemnation for them. We're back to the fig tree. When you saw it, afterward, you didn't re- relent and believe him. They saw these people being saved, being touched, being healed. And all it did was make their hearts harder. And they never believed. Now, this is an interesting thing. I want to read this one last article to you. This was, this was astounding to me. Uh, it's an article called Preachers Who Don't Believe, The Scandal of Apostate Pastors. Do you know that churches, you know, speaking of fig trees with leaves and, and no fruit, speaking of harlots and tax collectors and lepers that are being saved, entering the kingdom, while those that have the degrees and the certificates and all the knowledge and the right dress and the right clothes and the right Bible translation are, are missing out because they don't believe, churches are filled, folks, today with pastors who don't believe the gospel. And we have had this, there is a hunger now for the word of God. Listen to this. this uh, these two folks did a, uh, a study. A study was conducted at the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts by Daniel Dennett and Linda Lascala about uh, what they call the new atheism. Interestingly, Dennett proposes a new interpretation of theological liberalism, noting that many modern people claim to be Christians while holding to virtually no specific theological content. Dennett suggests that their mode of faith should not be described as belief, but as believing in belief. They undertook the project with the goal of looking for unbelieving pastors and ministers who continue to serve their churches in secret disbelief. Their small and self-selected sample of ministers represents a microcosm of the theological collapse at the heart of many churches and denominations. So they go on to quote a number of different pastors, some from conservative, some from liberal um, denominations. Rick, a campus minister for the United Church of Christ, perhaps the most liberal denomination, was an agnostic in college and seems to have lost all belief by the time he graduated from seminary. He chose ordination at the UCC because it required no forced doctrine. He does not believe all this creedal stuff, about the incarnation of Christ or the need for salvation, but he remained in the ministry because these are my people. This is the context in which I work. These are the people that I know. In the pulpit, his mode uh, is to talk as if he does believe, but uh, because as long as you are talking about God and Jesus in the Bible, that's what they want to hear. 
You're just phrasing it in a way that makes sense to them. But language is ambiguous and can be heard in different ways. Daryl is a Presbyterian uh, who sees himself as progressive-minded pastor who wants to see his kind of non-doctrinal Christianity given validity in some way. He acknowledges that he is more a pantheist than a theist and thinks that many of the more educated members of his church hold the same beliefs as his own. And those beliefs or unbeliefs are stated clearly, I reject the virgin birth. I reject substitutionary atonement. I reject the divinity of Jesus. I reject heaven and hell in the traditional sense, and I am not alone. Amazingly, he's candid about the fact that he remains in ministry. Can you guess why he's still there? Somebody say money? Yeah, because he's got no other skills. And so he's stuck. So they stay in the ministry, unbelieving, because they have to, to, to make a living. And we wonder, and, and we, 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 people read this about the fig tree that Jesus curses. I'll just read, this could, I could go on. He, he does that because of, of financial. He says, I may be burning bridges in terms of my ability to earn a, a living this way. If he were to come out and talk about that, um, the fact that he doesn't believe. Another place he says, I still need a, I need a job. Um, Preachers who are not believers is a stunning and revealing report that lays bare a level of heresy, apostasy, and hypocrisy that staggers the mind. In, 19, in 1739, Gilbert Tennant preached his famous sermon on the danger of an unconverted ministry. In that sermon, Tennant described unbelieving pastors as a curse upon the church. They prey upon the faith and the faithful. These caterpillars labor to devour everything green. So I read that... Uh, and my heart broke because I know it's true. And it was true in Jesus' day. And it's true in our day. And, and congregations are sleeping. And as long as the people get to see their friends. And look, you guys, whether you stay here you know, for the next 25, 30 years worshiping with us. Or you, you move, you go. You have to demand that you're shepherded by a shepherd who lives the gospel who believes that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and it's evidenced in his life. And we need to have a church that lives that and believes that. Otherwise, we're just like a tree that bears no fruit. I long for hungry people to come and see the reality of our faith, not the beauty of our building or any of those things. And, and to, see, to see harlots, to see tax collectors, to see drug addicts, to see the proud, the religious, to see someone who's grown up in church come to the terms and say, you know what, I grew up in church, but I was never saved. And to walk forward and to say, today is the day of my salvation. No more playing games for me. I'm either going to get on board or I'm going to stop playing this game. And I pray that as we close today, Phil's going to come up. I'm going to pray and that again, as we close, that these would be things you'd be working through for yourself. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? And I think what, what, what my heart longs to see is that you see that living the genuine Christian life, walking with God, is so much better than faking it. It's so much better than faking it. You sleep a whole lot better at night. Isn't that true? And just, you know what? Let yourself do it. Surrender to the Lord. They could have surrendered at any time, couldn't they have? It's when Jesus preached at them, preached to them, they could have said, they could have gotten together and said, guys, 
He's right. We're in trouble. We need to repent and turn to God. But that's not what they said. But maybe someone is in here this morning. Uh, Let's stand. We're going to sing a closing song. And at any time, please feel free to come up, talk, pray. We'll tell you what's involved if you have more questions about being a Christian. Amen?